right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New City. Good to see you all. And let me extend a a greeting and welcome to those of you in the cafe. And if you are watching or will watch online, just want to say thanks for checking in. It's always a a privilege to get to open up God's Word for us. And hopefully we're all ready to, again, engage the Scriptures and engage our hearts towards God. Um, My name is Nick Schreiber. I'm one of the pastors here on the South Park campus. And it's always humbling to get to preach. Um, And so I'm very thankful for that. Um, also, you know, I hope your summers are going well. I, um, you know, summer for me and my family, it's always, it's always um, uh, a different rhythm, different pace, but the days are still filled just as full um, with things. And um, hopefully in the midst of this, this season, you're able to get time away, but get time with family. But also, it's in these seasons, too, that we need to be very intentional with. All right, God, you still intersect in us in different moments, and uh, hopefully this morning can be uh, one of those moments where God kind of intersects with our lives and causes us to continue to draw us more and more towards Him. Um, hey, as you, some of you have maybe noticed, I'm holding a bag in my hand, um, uh, and in this bag there are some, some personal items, some memorabilia of sorts, um, and I thought that this morning one of the ways you, I can let you guys get to know me a little bit more is by doing a little show and tell. And I think that as I show some of these things and tell, um, that you guys will also have a little personal connection to some of them. But, but basically, there might be a little blast from the past, but this helps me kind of, again, I get to start. There is a point to this, but I'd love to I, as well have you just see some of the things from my childhood. So all these things have to do with my childhood. And so I'll just start one by one. And so this first one, I'll start with the most iconic thing. And I think right when I reveal this, you'll know um, the original Nintendo, right? And so back in the, the, the late 80s, when I was about eight or nine years old, my brother and I, we saved up all our money to get this thing. And we spent a lot of hours playing games like Mario and Contra and Tech Mobile. Um, and even, even as I have this now, I mean, just the, the sound, I mean, it just brings back, like, the remembering trying to blow in this to get all the dust out. And, and we kept it pristine, but a lot of hours were spent there as a kid. Love that thing. Here's the next thing. Um, and again, maybe you can relate to this, but sports cards were a big part of my childhood. A lot of hours collecting baseball, football, basketball cards. I mean, you know, right now they sit in a, in a box in my closet, so I don't do much with them. But just going through them, though, reminds me. Like Brett Favre rookie card. We got a King Griffey card here. And I just, I mean, I even remember that, that stick of gum that would come in some of the packaging, just the stiffness of that gum. I mean, it just still brings, brings back memories. Here's the next thing. And Again, something I think we all can relate to, but remember these books? <laughs> Many hours, <laughs> CDs, a DC Talk, you know, got some Chris Tomlin, got some Christian rap, Gospel Gangsters. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, um, but man, we have a lot, you know, Will Smith's in here. But I spent a lot of money collecting my CDs. And how many of you have this still in your car? <laughs> right, all right, we got some CDs going on. All right, yes. But they're not so much, not so present anymore. Um, here's this uh, next thing, and this is more symbolic in nature. I did not have this as a kid, but, but I did have jerseys, and jerseys were a big part. And I just, this, this represents for me, I have a great love for football. 
in the NFL. And as a young kid growing up in New Orleans, the Saints were terrible. And so I chose the Kansas City Chiefs as my team. And so this symbolizes that. You know, I'm not a bandwagon fan. There are a lot of those nowadays because we do have the best quarterback um, in the league right now. But it just symbolizes, again, just, just that love for football. And, and I wore jerseys a ton. And then there's one more thing in here. Many of you can remember where you were and what age you were when you first got a cell phone, right? And so this was not my first cell phone, but it does remind me of an older phone. It is an older phone. Um, and when I was in college, I got my first phone. And man, I protected that thing. And it was bigger, it was bulkier, but I sported it on my, on my waist. You know, I wanted it to be seen. I felt so cool. And I think for many of us, we can relate to that and still do. These things still are very, very precious to us, right? And so I bring these, these items up this morning once so you can learn a little bit about me. But, but more than that, each of these items at one point or another in my life became an idol that God had to work on me about, and I had to lay them down. And I, I've had to lay down a lot of idols in my life, um, and I'll have to lay down a lot more but I think that, um, I think you might have a similar story to mine. And, and it, when I was asked to preach this morning, I was given some liberty, and a few things kind of merged together um, to lead me to our theme, this theme of the power of idols in our life um, that led me to this passage. And here's a few things. I mean, I found that recently a lot of my discussions in my Bible studies or discussions just with people in general had this, this theme of idols or, or those things that we need to put to death because they're leading our hearts towards God's. And so that's just kind of been on my mind and on my heart recently. But I also know that in the summertime, with all of the adjustments in schedule, with all of the, the kind of the more play that we get, um, there could be, if we're not careful, there can be this kind of malaise that gets put in our heart that, and things start to creep in. And if we're not intentional, Things can bend our hearts away from Him. And so as I started thinking about some of those things, um, I, was reminded, I was reminded of a book that I read. And so I started reading this. And so there's all these things. So this book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. I don't know if you've ever, ever read it or not, but it's, it's a very devotional book. It's very good. It's a little heady. It has these and thous all throughout it. So it's an older, older book, but it's, it's one of those books that you just can read little by little. And A.W. Tozer in this, he takes a story and he takes an image and he uses it to speak to us about idols, about surrender, um, about trust. And in so in learning and borrowing from A.W. Tozer, the image, the story for us today is, is, the, is that of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn to Genesis chapter 22 and that'll be our, our foundation text this morning. And if you don't have one, raise your hand. If you're in the cafe, somebody will bring you one. Maybe they've already done that. And as you turn there, you may recall the context of this story. I mean, just, just let me just get us caught up in the story of Abraham. So Abraham, God promises him and his wife Sarah a son. Even though they were old in years, he promised him that this son would be the beginning of a great nation, that, that a nation that would be a blessing to all other nations. I mean, this is Genesis 12 where God says, hey, Abraham, go to a land where I will show you and I'll make your name great. 
and, and I will bless you so that you can then be a blessing to others. And, and, and guess what? God fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah, and, and God gives them a son, Isaac. And Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 when they had, when they had Isaac. And, and A.W. Tozer, as he, as he walks through this story, he has this, this, this quote. This, it's very simple, but yet I think very profound, because it kind of helped unlock Genesis 22 for me. And so on the screens I have it, and it says this. He says, Abraham was old when Isaac was born, old enough indeed to have been his grandfather. And the child became at once the delight and idol of his heart. And that last clause is the key. And I, I agree with him. I believe that this was what was happening in Abraham's heart. This is the greater purpose of what God's doing in Genesis 22, is trying to, trying to root out this, this thing that had become now his delight where his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, the fulfillment of all that God has promised, and his son was a great gift, yet an idol that was competing for his heart. And if you haven't caught it yet, here's the theme for us this morning, and I'm going to borrow from A.W. Tozer, but our pursuit of God requires a stripping away of all other rivals to the throne of God in our heart. Our intimacy with Christ is contingent upon a rooting out of idols. Walking with Jesus requires a surrender of all things, good and bad, to being prominent in our hearts. That the thing that's prominent needs to be Jesus. It's Him, nothing else. And it's when we do this, when we embrace this, that we gain all things. And, and so let's look at Genesis chapter 22 we're going to read the passage. I'm going to add some insights here and there, um, but we're going to read verses 1 through 14. And here, look at verse 1. Look at the first six words. After these things, God tested Abraham. This, these six words are so helpful for us, the readers, because they indicate to us that something's going on here. Right? If they weren't there, we'd be caught off guard. We'd be like, wait a second, Isaac's born, and then this has happened, and then you're going to ask him. But we see here that God's doing something greater. Now, we often have a lot more information as the readers than the actual participant, Abraham. He does not know. But we as readers do. And we see that God's up to something. And so after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said this, and look at the emphatic sense here. Take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And again, it's second, second person singular. Your son, your only son, whom you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Just as simple as that. He just got up and went, right? But there's, I, I'm, I'm facetious here, but there's a giant gap between two and three of what's, what's going on in his heart. And I think the, the author doesn't really give any explanation because no description is necessary because we can assume that that night of sleep wasn't a lot of sleep going on. Abraham is, is called to lay down his son. And that, that act is excruciating. But we see a quick response from him, right? But we can only imagine what he must have been going through in that night. So he arose, he arose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So he walks from Beersheba down to the area that now is Jerusalem. It's about a two-day journey. 
And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. And look at this, this next phrase. And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's, that's an amazing act of trust. Anytime that we, you and me, anytime that we walk in obedience, it's worship. Anytime that you and I, we walk in surrender to him, it's worship. Anytime that we display this mindset that, God, you are more worthy, which is the root for worship, your worth, E, then, God, that I know my place. And Abraham is, is saying, we're going to go and worship. And, and if we keep reading, look at the next verse. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, uh, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both of them went together. Abraham, Abraham had this unique confidence that the Lord would provide. He was confident that the two of them would return safely somehow. Now again, there's a lot of mystery here. I, and again, we don't know exactly. But Abraham was just confident that God was going to do something that he could provide. And he displays this remarkable trust in God, especially when the death of Isaac would appear to contradict everything that God had promised to him. So although the command seems contradictory, and in and of itself it does, but Abraham knows that it did not nullify the character of God and did not nullify the promise of God. All right, God, I'm going to take this step. I'm going to walk with you because your character hasn't changed and your promise hasn't changed. And although... Although you're asking me to do something I, quite, I don't quite understand, or because I think it contradicts what I don't, it doesn't nullify your character or your promise. And I think a lot of us can relate. We're walking through things in our lives now, situations or things that we're called to give up, and we go, God, I just feel like this is kind of opposite of what I felt like you were doing, but now here we are, and we need to be reminded, all right, does it, is God's character changed? Because his promise has changed, and hopefully we can boldly say no. And that's, those two things, I think, are always at play in these moments of trust or obedience or mystery for us. God's character and God's promises. Uh, God's character does not and cannot change. He is not evil. He is not malicious. God does not move from being for us in one moment to then being against us the next. He doesn't, it's not how he works. His character has not changed. And his promises have not changed. He's not one to promise something and then renege. His promises are sure. He will make Abraham into a great nation. And Isaac is the promised son. And so one of the main points in this, in this, in this passage or in this, this time right now is our ability to surrender all things on the altar flows from this confident trust in God's character and his promise. You can bank on it. They're solid. And, and at times, we do need to just preach to ourselves, all right, does God love me? Yes. Is God powerful to raise the dead even if I slay my son? Yes. I mean, that's what Hebrews 11 says. Abraham's walking in going, all right, God, you're, you are powerful to raise the dead. So whatever you're asking me here, I'll do it. Can God, will God keep his promises always? Look at verse 9. Let's keep, let's keep reading. 
When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And and you can just imagine the tension here in the story. I mean, he is right at the point of doing it, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, right? There's this urgency from the angel, stop. Here I am, Abraham says, and he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Um, as I was looking back at this book by A.W. Tozer, um, there's a quote that just kind of jumped off the pages. And this quote is written from the vantage point of God giving explanation to Abraham. And look on the screens. This is the quote. It says, I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. Now you may have the boy, sound and well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I wonder if God, for us, potentially needs to take moments like this to go, I need to root that thing out. But knowing that when he does, and when we are able to offer those things, those idols on the altar, that it's in those moments that God begins to remind us that God, God will provide something greater. And look at verses 13 and 14, because that's what he does. Abraham lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in thicket by his horns, and you used to see God's grace and providence in that moment, weaving things together. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, which is where we get the name Jehovah-Jireh from. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And you see in these two verses this first glimpse, this first theme in Scripture of a substitute sacrifice. You lay down something that you think is bringing you everything, and I'm going to give you something better because I am what's best, and I will provide a better sacrifice for you that will, that will, that will provide all the longings of your heart. Namely, namely we know the gift of Jesus as it, as it points to. And so Isaac is safely by Abraham's side, and they walk back home. And, and A.W. Tozer, he, as I was reading, he gives this description of that scene of Abraham now, he, he has everything, but he now possesses nothing. And, and that's the title that A.W. Tozer in his book gives to this passage, the blessedness of possessing nothing. There's a blessedness for us when we get to the point in, 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 in the world and in, in, in the way we view things and our hopes that we need to get to a point where we say, I possess nothing. I just, I'm content with you. You are enough. And, and when he uses that phrase, he doesn't mean that we don't possess things. You and I, obviously, we do literally possess things. But what he means is that we don't allow those things to own us. That everything that's been given is for God, is from God, and is God's. And we place no trust or allegiance to these things. And so here's the main question for us, for me this morning. Is what is God asking you to lay on the altar? So I know that God's always speaking. If God were to sidle up to you and go, hey, this thing, 
That's, that's, that, that might be an idol, or that's an idol. Would you lay it down? What's stopping you? Because I believe that these idols, they kind of like have strings attached to our hearts. And if we're not careful, our hearts can be bent away. And there are good things in our life that you love, and there are bad things in your life that you love, that I love. And if we're not careful, both of those things can be idols or rivals to God in our hearts. And so here's what I would like. I'm just going to say some specific things to add some specificity here to this moment, right? And so I'm just going to, these are things I'm thinking about for myself and maybe for you. All right, is it our children? Have they become idols? Where they've taken prominence in our heart above God? Is it your success or your reputation or your name, your accolades? Is it your GPA as a student? Is it that number one choice of college? I need it. If I don't go there, my world's done. Is it, is it your house? Is it your kitchen? Is it your money? Is it your retirement? Is it the newest and best and coolest toy or technology? Is it your spouse? Have they become an idol that's taken the place of God in your heart? Or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? You need them like you need air. Like all these songs that we listen like. Is it boyfriend or girlfriend? Or is it your desire for a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend? That's, honestly, it's consuming your thoughts. And is it an idol? Is it your entertainment? Netflix, your streaming package, ESPN, your sports? Um, Is it movies? Is that an idol? Is it your routine? Now, routine's not a bad thing. We need routine. But, but there are at times when we have our routine messed up, it helps kind of show us, how, is it something that we've placed so much emphasis on that it's become an idol? Is it your love or need for independence? Is it your Saturdays? These are my day. Is it, is it sex? Or pornography? Or your physical appearance? I mean, all these things can become idols. Here's one, a couple out. Is it your church? Or your concept of church? And even those possessive pronouns become indicators for us. Your church, your concept of this is the way. They, be, they could be idols. And, and all these things, good or bad, right? Is God calling you, hey, you need to lay those down. Root them out. And in, and in the letting go of them, guess what? we gain Christ. And he's calling us to do this. And theologian and pastor from the 14th century, John Calvin, he has this quote. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. It's just constantly producing idols moment, moment, day after day. And our job, our story, our journey with Christ is one of a constant smashing of them. Would you and I be discerning enough and intentional enough to be thinking, what is that idol in my heart now? But here's a, a question for us. How do we know if it's an idol? Now, and this might be helpful for us. You know, some things, 
like if there's sin in our life and we know like that's taken prominence and honestly I, I know it's wrong but I do it anyway like that we know it has weight over God in that moment so at that point it just becomes are you going to obey are you going to smash it but there's things that are really good in our life that become a little harder to discern and so here's here's some things that might be helpful for us to think through again just in general idolatry is simply loving something more than I love God Idolatry is believing that something, that that something, whatever it is, will be the source of my salvation or my joy or my security or my peace or my identity. So we're basically giving to something the role, the only role that God, that, that God should have. God should be the only source of our identity and joy and, 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 and security. It could be an idol if that thing consumes your thoughts. All I think about is going home and watching Netflix, right? That's going, wait a second, where's your heart at? It could be an idol if, if that thing affects your joy or takes a prominent place in your time. Now, again, not saying these are just things you think about. I'm not saying it always matches up like this, but they might be helpful indicators. If that thing gets lost, broken, or taken— and as a result, I forsake what's right. <laughs> so that's taken, I'm going to get it back at all costs. And you're like, wait a second, you know it's not right. And so you're basically giving prominence to the thing over what you know God would have you do. So who has the weight here? If it gets lost, broken, or taken, you grow depressed. If it gets lost, broke, or taken, you grow so determined to make your disappointment known. You want the whole world to know. I can't play video games right now. I'm going to let you know about it for hours, mom or dad. You go, wait a second. That might be an indication here of where you're prominent, what's taking prominence in your heart. Or if you have certain things in your life where the possessive pronouns mine or my hold firmly to, man, that could be an indicator too. So here's the thing, though. As we grow intentional about trying to process these things, I believe that when I place them on the altar, this is a constant act of worship for us. So in a way, it's a great discipline. Like even those of you that grew up in liturgical churches, right, you have these daily or weekly confessionals. Like that's so helpful for us to kind of get into practice of, right? Because when we do that, when I, when I confess, God, this is an idol, this is something I've given prominence to, I'm affirming and validating this proper place that God has. It's not about me. It's, 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 it's God. I want you to be the, on the throne. And so this rooting out of idolatry is a practice of worship. It's a practice of allegiance. It's kind of like a vow renewal. Like you renew your vows to go, all right, today, this, no more. My love is only for you. And I think it's so helpful for us to get into practice of it. Maybe in a pl- you're in a place like I am, or even like this summer, today, tomorrow, this week. It's just a constant thing that we need to be thinking through. Here's, here's one, one more question, and I have a few challenges for you. One more question I was thinking about is, what do I get back? So if I renounce everything, what do I get back? And that's not always a great question. I mean, it's kind of a sad question when you think about it, but it's a real question. Um, and I think Scripture indicates all these amazing things that we receive when we as people continue to say, these things don't matter, that I can't, that those idols, I need to lay them down. And, 
And, and so I would say, is God enough? What do we receive? We receive everything. Blessedness, goodness, his presence, walking in step with him. When I lay Isaac on the altar, God says, I'll provide you something better. We receive, I mean, Scripture, there's so many of them that will say things like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. My presence, my provision. Even in Genesis 22, as Abraham is walking down, the angel of the Lord God comes and speaks to him and says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that you, because you have done this and, not, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, he'll say this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you are trying to protect me and mine, you're going to lose your life. You're going to miss it. But those, whoever loses his life for me will find it. Psalm 34 says, those who look to me for joy, your faces will be radiant. Um, Galatians 5 says, hey, be filled with the Spirit. And how do we do that? By surrendering more and more of our heart and life to Him and, and, and forsaking idols. So when I walk in step with the Spirit, when I walk in step with God and He's prominent, guess what? I don't have to fear the law. There's freedom. And I'm led by Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And when you do this, this is your spiritual act of worship. So not only these idols, but, but yourself. Well, I lay it on the altar, knowing that, God, you're greater. My life is now yours. Um, it's in the relinquishing of all things that we receive all things, namely Jesus. And he's saying to us, would you just give it to me? And you get me. And yeah, I got all the other stuff for you. I, I mean, I, I'm going to take care of you. But I'm going to take you on an adventure that will show you that life is so much greater than this. And, and maybe, maybe you're in a place, you're like, I, I still, I'm not, a, I'm not there. Like, I still, there's so many things I love, and, and I don't, I'm not quite in step yet with this whole God thing. And I would just say, hey, ask God. Talk to him about it. Ask him to change your affections. Would you change my affections? I want to get there. Here's, here's a few challenges. I got five quick challenges for you and me this morning, all right? And then we'll close. And, and in view of, again, a, a father, Abraham, being willing to lay an idol on the table, here's a few things I was thinking about. You and I, we, we are, we are teachers and modelers of the principle that this world is not our home. And I hope that when we walk, walk through life with our kids, with our families, with people around us, that they catch this, this message from us implicitly and explicitly. This world is not my home. God is greater than anything in this world. Things, success, toys, they're not our life. They will always leave us empty and wanting more. Even people, if our hope is in them, will leave us empty and wanting more. And we need to hold them loosely, and we need to trust that God is sweeter than anything in this world. So that's the first challenge. Second challenge is this. I, I would encourage you to relinquish the possessive pronouns mine and my from your vocab and lifestyle. Now, again, I know it's literally hard to do that. We need our possessive pronouns. But in your perspective, 
just the way you walk through life, just kind of mentally going, all right, this is not mine. This is not mine. This is not mine. I think that's healthy for us as we begin to lay things down. Number three, live as if you believe that God will keep his word. Abraham models that perfectly. God will provide. God knows the best way to live. God can do the impossible in order to take, to take care of us and to fulfill his promise. God has saved us not because of anything he's done. There's forgiveness that God has given us. I know he's going to return. There's all these promises that he's given to us. And would we live as if we believe it? Hey, God knows where joy comes from, so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe that, he, that, that if I obey his word and continue to walk after him, that he will provide all that I need. Here's the fourth thing. Repent when you need to. When, when I know an idol has taken prominence in my life, I need to talk to God. I need to go and repent. Say, I'm sorry. Um, and now repentance, if you remember, is not just a turning away from something, but it's a turning away and then a turning to. So not only do I need to turn away from that thing, but I need to turn to that someone, Jesus. And so as we repent, keep our eyes on Jesus but talk to him, confess it, root it out, tell him about it, ask him for his help, and rejoice that he has given you forgiveness and salvation and grace already. But continually going, God, this is something I tell you. It's, I'm so sorry. It's there again. Ask him for help. And I would say this too. Um, if something's going on right now in your heart or this week as you process this idea of idols, I would encourage you not to just keep it to yourself. Tell somebody that you trust. Because I think that in the getting it out, we expose the darkness. We expose it and we ask others to enter in the journey with us. It's so helpful for us. And here's the last challenge. And this is a little bit more weird, but it's just these two words that have been kind of circling in my mind this week. The word contentment and thanksgiving. I believe those two words are married together. When I'm content, I'll be thankful. And when I'm content in him and with him, guess what? I'm not clamoring after idols. I'm not clamoring after that next thing. I'm not clamoring after trying to, to do something that brings me success. When I'm content with just him, there's joy there. And then Thanksgiving, not again, not just saying thank you, but this posture and attitude that, God, you're so much better than I deserve there's a, there's a thanksgiving at beauty, at his word, at the community that God's placed you in. There's beauty, there's thanksgiving. And those two things, I believe, help stem these idolatries that at times creep in. And so I just share these things with you. Again, I'm on this journey too. But as a church, and I'm just praying that God would again revive us individually. Again, we need this reviving from God. Root this stuff out. But let's be praying for each other because as we, again, lay these things down, man, God will get a hold of us and he'll continue to move us out living for him. So let's do that together, okay? Thank you very much. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we again rejoice in you. Thank, thank you so much for, um, again, a passage like today, a challenge. But God, we need your help. We confess... Um, we confess to God there's idols there even now. And so we ask that you would forgive us, root them out, 
And by your power and your help and by your spirit, God, would you allow our hearts to be fully yours? We love you. And God, we want to glorify you in all things. And so God, um, so God, receive our prayers today. And we're so thankful. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.